Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chafe that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning. Is anyone else freezing? Okay, so long as we're all freezing, uh, then it should be fine. You guys can sit closer together and warm up like penguins. Shotgun middle. That's what penguins do. Uh, So this is our second sermon in our new series, which we're calling Anatomy of the Soul, and it's a look through the Psalms. So the basic format will be looking at a psalm each week, and the reason we're calling it Anatomy of the Soul is we're pulling that out of a John Calvin quote, where he describes the psalms uh, using those words, because he says that in them we see all of the parts of the soul described and all of the many different experiences and feelings and emotions and thoughts are portrayed in the Psalms. Not merely described, but actually shown to us in the Psalms. They're depicted. So the reason that uh, I think this is going to be particularly relevant to us now is because uh, a lot of times we don't know how to handle our emotions. We don't know where our emotional selves fits into our spiritual selves. How does that fit with the, the reasonableness that we see in Christianity? Where does emotion jive with that? And in our culture, what we see are pretty much two examples of how we ought to operate with our emotions. One sees emotions as the primary core of our being. So in order to truly know yourself, you need to understand what are your emotions telling you. This manifests itself in such Facebook posts as follow your bliss or uh, chase your passions. See, what that's saying is the core of you, in order to really know yourself, you have to get in touch with what are you feeling? What are your emotions telling you? And follow those things. Authenticity is living out of your emotions. Now, the other side of the coin has a total opposition to the emotions. It's saying that your emotional self is merely clouding the way from your reason, and the way to live is to properly order those things, so that the reason is always dictating the emotions. This uh, manifests itself in terms of uh, sort of a, a stoic absence of emotion, or it can also be a sort of intense uh, presence uh, in order to avoid any sort of uh, emotional pain or real depth of emotional experience. The Psalms, on the other hand, paint a very different picture than either of those narratives in our culture. The Psalms say that the emotions are a real part of us. They are songs. The the Psalms uh, were oftentimes sung. And the reason that we sing is because there's more to us than mere doctrinal assent. There's more to belief. There's more to Christianity 
than a, a mere uh, premise in an argument and lining up those premises correctly and calling that belief. These are sung because we're whole people and our emotions are part of ourselves. And so that's why we sing together in the mornings. Well, one morning a week. <laughs> yeah, in our house, we sing together every morning. <laughs> that's not, we're the Von Trapps. Um, I'm so distracted now. The point is that the Psalms describe a wholehearted way of living. And in better understanding how to relate to our emotions, we can live more wholeheartedly, completely engaged with our full selves. What we see in both other narratives of our culture is we idolize one aspect of our humanity and we demonize another aspect of our humanity. So we either idolize our emotions and demonize the intellect, or we idolize the intellect and demonize the emotions. Neither are correct. We were created as whole people in the image of God, which means we need to live as complicated as that may be. We need to learn to live as whole people. So that's why we're going through the Psalms. Last week, Russ uh, took the, a bit off the front of Psalm 119, which is a really long psalm, uh, and he used that to describe what is the psychology that the psalms describe? How do they describe the way that we actually function? And we can use that as sort of a map to help us better understand ourselves. And he described it in terms of an, an intellect that looks at the world and makes particular judgments about the world, which motivates a will, and then we have actions. And so within that sort of a framework, we are uh, applying the rest of the psalms. So we're going to look at how do these actually fit into our lives and our worldview, and how does the Word of God shape us in these different ways. Psalm 1, uh, I think, is Psalm number 1 for a reason. We don't exactly know the story of how the psalms came together or how they were put into their order. Some people, and it's likely that it was actually Ezra who did it. Uh, many people think that uh, I think that's pretty likely. Ezra, like from our last sermon series, like four weeks ago, like 10 decades ago. Um, Ezra likely compiled them and placed them into categories of five books, which was likely to call to mind the five first books of the Hebrew Bible, the Pentateuch, the five original books in, in the Scripture. And we see that each book of the Psalms, each of the five books of the Psalms, uh, begins with a sort of introductory psalm and ends with a doxology. Doxology is like the singing that we do at the end of each service. It's like my favorite part of the week, the praise God from whom all blessings flow part. I won't ruin it for you. Uh, you'll see, it's pretty cool. Um, and I think that the placement of Psalm 1 is intentional because it acts as a real introduction to the book of Psalms as a whole. In fact, it kind of stands as, a, as an invitation or even a reason for engaging with the Psalms. Psalm 1, it, it's kind of like a premise or an argument saying you are going to need this entire book of the Psalms. And Psalm 1 stands as that invitation for us. So we're going to begin where the Psalms begin in Psalm 1. And as we move through this psalm, what we're going to see is it begins with a warning, and then it moves to a promise, and then we're going to see the outcome of both the warning and the promise. So warning, promise, outcome. First of all, the warning. 
Psalm begins, and it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So the psalm begins with this familiar sort of language. Blessed is the man. We hear that in a lot of the wisdom literature, in the Proverbs. Blessed is the man. And it, or even in uh, Jesus' Beatitudes. Blessed, is, blessed are the poor in spirit. So what is this word blessed? What is he communicating here? What we see is that blessed has an antithesis in the scriptures. And the antithesis of blessed is to perish. You see, blessedness is a pointing towards a happiness, an abundance of life, a completeness of life, a fullness, a fulfillment of life. And perishing is coming to nothing. It's the opposite of blessedness. So he's saying, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. What is he communicating here? On a quick read, in the way that I think we typically read the scripture, uh, which I think can be too quick, and we aren't actually seeing what it's saying, but on a quick read, I think we walk away from an initial passage like that. In what, what it says and what we hear is actually different because what we hear is, okay, don't be wicked, don't be a sinner, and don't scoff. Instead, be a righteous person who meditates on the law. That's what we hear. But that's not actually what's being communicated in this psalm. What's being talked about here is uh, a sort of influence that's taking place over us. It's an engagement with influence. This isn't about being wicked. This isn't about being a sinner. This isn't about being a scoffer. This is about being influenced by those things. So we see these three words in there. There's counsel, the counsel of the wicked, which is talking about how we're thinking. There's the way of the wicked, which is talking about how we're acting. And there's the seat of the wicked, which is discussion of our identity where we find ourselves, where we finally sit down, what is our core of our identity. And there's a progression in those themes and the way that the psalmist lays these out. He says there's a walking, a standing, and then a sitting. What we see is a progression of engagement, a progression of identity and influence with the wickedness of the world. So there's a walking by and a, huh, that sounds interesting. Maybe I'll stick around and hear a little more. And a standing. And then finally a sitting. You guys know what sitting looks like. A sitting of uh, uh, total identification now with these wicked people. This is now the group that I'm a part of. This is my identity. This is the way I think. This is the way I act. These are the people that I associate with. This is my world. It's an establishment of worldview. And the contrast to that is not what you'd expect. Because what you expect to immediately see is, but instead they walk by the righteous, and they stand by the righteous, and they sit with the righteous. But instead, it jumps right to the contrasting option in verse 2, jumps right to, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. He goes straight to this idea of delight. You see, it, that recolors the way that we read those initial verses. Why 
do you walk by? Why do you stand? Why do you sit? Because the wickedness that you see, you delight in. You actually want to be influenced by it. You want to engage with it. You want to identify with it. That's the way we work. We see it and we delight in it. And so the antithesis of that person is somebody who sees, no, that's wicked, and they actually delight and enjoy the law of the Lord more than the wicked offerings of the world. So this first bit, rather than a command, it actually acts more like a diagnostic. Where is your delight? What is your delight actually in? That's what is being shown and pulled out here. The Psalms begin, literally, in Psalm 1, in the first couple of verses, in the only place that we could begin in engaging with them. They begin by describing where we are now. Where is your head at now? Where's your head at? That's a song. Uh, That's what's being discussed here. Where are you now? Where is your thinking now? What are your influences now? And you see, that's an important place to start because oftentimes the hardest part of meditating on Scripture, which is ultimately becomes the point of this psalm, the most difficult part of meditating on Scripture is seeing what do I actually think now? Where do I really sit? What Am I, where am I actually sitting with the wicked? Where am I sitting with the scoffers? How is my worldview actually counter to what's being shown and demonstrated in the Bible? What am I really delighting in? I've been looking everywhere for the source of this quote that uh, one of my professors used to say all the time, uh, and I can't find it anywhere, so I guess just he said it. Um, but he's not famous, so I'm not going to use his name. I uh, only care about famous people. He's, he always said, you are most influenced by the philosophy you don't know. You're most influenced by the philosophy that you don't know. So what does that mean? It's a strange thing to say. How could that be? What he means is that more often than not, we're operating under assumptions that seem to us to be merely self-evident. This is just the way things are. This isn't a worldview or a particular way of thinking or a particular way of approaching the world. This is simply the way things are. And when we're operating like that, we're being influenced by a stream of thinking that we don't even know that we aren't even familiar with. So I'm going to put some skin on this in an example, um, which provides me two opportunities. It's a good example, and, I get, and I'll brag on my sister. who She's in the orange waving. <laughs> so my sister teaches high school at, uh, uh, here in Denver at a local high school, and they're teaching through this uh, semester a book called Persepolis, which is a graphic novel about the uh, Islamic Revolution in Iran. I'm surprised you guys haven't read it. (laughs) 
Um, <laughs> so they're teaching through this book, and it has a scene in it in which uh, after the Islamic Revolution, a girl is uh, being uh, forced to or made to or compelled to wear a head covering. And uh, the reaction of the students reading it is this is just, uh, this is just wrong. You know, this, she, her rights are being violated, and she shouldn't be compelled to dress or act a certain way because of these cultural norms. But one of the students in her class uh, is a Muslim and really knows what he thinks, really knows what he believes. And according to my sister, is, he's brilliant. And he came to my sister after the class and was sharing how he, he didn't want to read this book because all this is doing is just reinforcing more stereotypes about Islam in the United States. And he's saying he has a totally different read on this moment in the story that's meant to portray this girl sort of heroically. He has a totally different read on it. Of the, Here's these people caring for her and looking, looking out for the best for her and looking to bring her into their culture in this communal way, um, and she's having none of it. See, he brings this totally, different, this totally different worldview to bear on this scene and comes out with totally different implications from it. And so, my sister, in their conversation, my sister was talking with him and they were uh, discussing, so what's our, what's our goal here then? And he says, you know, the difficult part, this is a paraphrase, it wasn't, this is secondhand. He says, you know, the, the difficult part is I have to walk into class every day and defend these things that I think, this worldview that I have. And to everyone else, it's just the way things are. It's just right and wrong. And they don't even realize that they have a worldview that they are coming from this particular perspective. And so my sister, which I think was brilliant, she pressed into the conversation a bit more and she says, why do you think that the rest of the students in the class see it as so wrong to make this woman wear a head covering? And they finally got there. It's because it, the perspective of the class is of Western Enlightenment individualism. And so the core essence of our culture and society is individual expression. So when that gets violated, it's unquestionably wrong. But when looked at from a culture that views things in terms of collective engagement, and success means success together and communally, then it's not wrong. So they decided, you know, the object of this class then needs to, needs to be to help the other students realize that what they think is just self-evidently true also represents another perspective. It also represents a very particular worldview. See, that's the difficult part. It's realizing that these things that just seem self-evident are actually a particular way of viewing the world. Because we don't know about the, you know, the influence of the Enlightenment and of the individualism that came from that onto our culture and onto our way of thinking. Because we don't know it and we aren't familiar with it, and that's just the water that we're in as fish. 
then it seems to us that we don't actually have a perspective. We're just seeing things as they are. Psalm 1 begins with saying that encroachment, that little by little engagement with the world in that way, to where you're finally sitting, and this is just the way things are, and this is just your normal delight. It starts by saying, we're going to expose that. Blessed is the one who exposes that and then delights in this other thing, delights in this law of the Lord that brings a corrective onto our way of viewing the world, that brings a, a lens that isn't geared towards uh, whatever we would like to see, but is geared towards a 2020 vision so that we might actually see things accurately, not merely from our own probably flawed or at least narrow perspective, but it begins with understanding we are coming from a particular place. We are being influenced by the world in very real ways. So they'll teach that to the rest of the class. I'll keep you posted. Your worldview is being shaped. The question is, do you realize it? Are you engaged with it? Or are things just self-evidently true? That's what Psalm 1 begins to push us into. Our beliefs which we often claim to have chosen, likely it was a little by little encroachment of something that you started to delight in. I may say that I delight in the Lord, but the reality is I'll delight in being in control. And therefore, I'll angle and manipulate and move in conversations in order to maintain an upper hand. Or I may even say I delight in the freedom of the gospel. And that's why I don't, uh, that's why it seems good to me that the woman would resist wearing a head covering. And yet, I may actually just be expressing my typical Western Enlightenment individualistic perspective. See, the Bible shines a light on what we're really thinking and where our values really lie. So, if this all connects back up to our delights, and if our worldview are in these certain ways shaped by our delights, and to be honest, I don't know what the order is. I don't know if it's we delight in something and then we become a part of it and that becomes our worldview, or we have a worldview, and therefore that causes us to delight in something. I think it's some sort of a mix of them. But we know that delight is this key ingredient in how we engage with the world, what we are delighting in. And so, in order to engage with Scripture, in order for our minds to be shaped towards what the Bible actually teaches, we need to be delighting in the law of God. We need to be delighting in the Word. And I think the psalmist knows that. And that's why the very next thing that the psalmist moves into is a promise, a beautiful promise of what it means when you delight in the Word, something that's actually winsome. In Psalm, uh, in verses 3 through 4, excuse me, says, He is like a tree planted by streams of water, 
that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. The description of the one who delights in the law of the Lord is, is of this deep nourishment. My wife has family out in Buena Vista, and well, it's their vacation home, so my wife occasionally has family out in Buena Vista. And uh, on the drive out there, there's a river that kind of runs along the valley, and you can, there's these giant trees just along that river, and they're just there because they're tapping into constantly this constant source of nourishment of the river. And so they're growing up and they're being uh, grown from this inside out, this nourishment. And that's a reflection of this promise that we see of meditating on the word. That it, it actually begins to grow us from the inside out. And as the word mingles with our own thoughts and with our own mind and with uh, these preconceived notions, it, it critiques parts of our thinking, and it affirms other parts of our thinking, and it begins to shape us and mold us and grow us so long as we're actually engaging with it. See, that's what this verse, that's what this passage moves into, this incredible benefit of this promise that we would be like a tree by streams of water that's bearing fruit. It doesn't lose its leaves. It moves through the seasons, and it's fine. It's, uh, it has this sturdiness and the steadiness about it. That's the promise to someone who delights in and meditates on the Word of God. The meditation, uh, this is laid out in the verse before. It says, on his law, he meditates day and night. That is the xylem and the phloem that brings the Word of God up into our hearts. The difficulty is meditation is deliberate. Meditation is an action of real engagement. Meditation is something that we do. I think that we don't typically have space for this way of thinking, for actually creating the space and the time and the rhythms in our lives to be like a tree planted by the river of the Word of God. Are you like a tree like that? Is that your engagement with the scripture? Is that your engagement with the word? Or is it uh, not a daily or a constant thing? Is it more like occasionally it rains and I get something and maybe hopefully I grow and hopefully I don't wither? That's not the picture of someone who delights in the word. Someone who delights in the word lives in it, meditates on it, lets it soak in, and then we change from the inside out. That's a key aspect of Christian growth. And it's captured in this organic metaphor, metaphor. It's that the growth takes place from the inside, and then the fruit is born on the outside. And what we often do is we look at mature Christians, and we say, look at the structure of their lives, and look at the fruit that's being born of their lives. I'm going to go and make my life look like that and try and get that type of fruit. But what that breeds is just a hypocrisy. Because we're trying to make ourselves look on the outside in a way that we aren't actually on the inside. Because we aren't trying to cultivate a depth 
of understanding and care and love and, and listen to the word, delight in the word of God. Instead, we're just trying to make our doctrine better. Instead, we're just trying to like structure ourselves so that we can win an argument with a non-Christian, which for the most part is purely theoretical, uh, as most of our evangelism tactics are, purely operating in theory, not in the context of a relationship. See, Christian change takes place by the Word of God coming into us and shaping our thinking by exposing the assumptions that we already have. That starts with a delight, a delight in the law of the Lord. There's an application here, and it's a simple one, but it's are you delighting? Are you meditating on the Word of God? Is it actually entering your mind and changing you and shaping you? There's a In, in that line of thinking, in terms of there are, we're most influenced by the philosophy that we don't know. One of the most helpful terms that I've come in contact with for exposing my own assumptions about the way I've been approaching the Bible as wrong is a term that I heard from Matt Chandler, but was actually developed by um, a couple of sociologists who did a study on teenage religion in the United States in 2005. They came up with this term uh, to describe what our, religi- what our religious life really looks like. And they called it moralistic, therapeutic deism. So what does that mean? Moralistic. It means there's not an emphasis on the gospel. There's not an emphasis on the reality of our being saved from our sin by a gracious God. Instead, there's an emphasis on moralism. There's there's an emphasis on being good. What is the goal of our religion? It's not being saved and celebrating our salvation. Instead, functionally, practically, the way it plays out is just in us being good. That's a miss. But it's often the way that we approach the Bible. Therapeutic. That means that we are using the scripture in order to get what we really want, which isn't God. Instead, it's some sort of peace. And so what are we really worshiping with our lives? We're worshiping peace, and we're using God to get that for us. And deism, which means that God isn't really engaged in any sort of real, tangible way with the world, but he bent down and made it in seven days, and since then he's been walking away. Deism. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. That's often how we approach the Bible. And then when you read it carefully, you realize that it's undoing that way of thinking all over the place. But that takes a meditation. That takes an exposure of the way that we already normally think and seeing that was a perspective that I gained little by little by avoiding the Scripture and hearing something delightful, and walking by, and then standing, and finally sitting down. You don't need this for moralistic therapeutic deism. Just go see Tony Robbins. It's the same thing. And many of us approach our religion in that way, 
because we don't take the time to meditate on what the Scripture is actually saying. So we'll move on real quickly to the outcome. It says, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The psalm begins with that blessed, and it ends with perish. These are the opposite of each other. The outcome of these two ways is laid out in the conclusion of the psalm. The righteous are remembered and flourish, and the wicked perish. So the question that you may be thinking or wondering is, how righteous? How righteous do I have to be? How righteous so I don't perish? How, cl- how much do I have to meditate on the law of God? How frequently? How, how close to the river do I need to be planted? How righteous do I need to be? If it's, if it's is it totally righteous? Do I need to be completely righteous? If so, then how could a meditation on the law possibly lead to delight? Or how could meditating on the law possibly be delightful? Something that you'd want to move to. If, as it turns out, before a holy God, our lack of righteousness means we perish, and that's what we see in the scriptures, then what hope is there? How is this a delightful meditation? Well, this morning, this is why you didn't go to Tony Robbins. You came here. I don't know if he's in town. Because this is what makes Christianity unique. You see, we can delight in the law of the Lord because in Jesus, that law has been fulfilled on our behalf. Psalm 53, 3, it says, They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. If that's true, how could we possibly delight in the law that seems to only stand to condemn us? We can if we see Jesus. We can if we see that the the perishing that our wickedness made us deserve, that he perished on our behalf. And the blessedness that he deserved for his perfect life, this total fulfillment, this, this abundant life, this amazing blessedness that we see promised here, He gives to us freely as a gift by his grace. You see, that gospel message, it moves into your mind and it exposes, you know, the way I've actually been viewing the world, the way I've actually been viewing my religion has not been one of grace. It has still been me walking up to God, trying to justify myself using God to try and get something that I wanted from him. It has not been a receiving of an incredible grace, a grace that seems so good that, to be honest, I haven't had the guts to believe it was true. That's why we meditate on the word. 
so that we soak up that truth into us. We remind ourselves of it, and that bears a real fruit in our lives. And the law becomes a delight when we see it fulfilled in Christ. It becomes something we can move to without fear because we know that we aren't using it to justify ourselves because Jesus justified us because he fulfilled it by his grace. Romans 8, 3 to 6, it says, For God has done, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit let your heart meditate on that soak that up into you that you might bear fruit let's pray let's take questions <laughs> What does it really mean to meditate on the law? Um, <laughs> like I heard you, but what does it really mean? It's um, kind of how that question sounds. I think it can mean a lot of things. I think it can mean slowly reading, actually considering. Asking questions like, what if I believed that? What if that were true? The way that we often read the Bible is we just let it off the hook. You cut the Bible way too much slack. You read something and it's strange and weird and it doesn't line up. And you're like, oh, well, it's an old book. It's probably just some cultural norm that I don't get. And you cut the Bible way too much slack. And what you should do is you should say, this is weird. That doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem to fit into the way that I see the world or into these the understandings that I've had. And then you go in and you meditate and you wrestle with it. Like when Jacob wrestles the angel in that U2 song. <laughs> it's in the Bible, but it's in a U2 song also. Jacob wrestles the angel and uh, he won't let go until he's blessed. Do you approach the Bible like that? Or do you, do you just sort of like give up and it's like, oh, you're so strong, Bible. <laughs> okay, I'll see you later. Like, is that your wrestling? Or do you say, I'm not going to let go until you bless me? Because there's too much at stake here. I, it's either my eternity or my whole life before me, which looks useless. I'm blind without this. I walk into the world. It's total mystery. I meet a new type of person that I can't figure out every other day. I've got no wisdom. I've got no light shining on where I should go. I'm a finite person. I can, I can barely see 100 yards. So I'm not letting go of this book. I'm not letting go of this text until you bless me until I see this life that you're promising me. I think that's meditation. 
really. Beyond the discipline of reading the word, praying, which aren't always accompanied by what we would call delight, what can we do to cultivate a true delight in the Lord? This is, this is that hard part. This is the part, like I sort of alluded to, where I don't know what comes first. I don't know if your proper view of the Lord has to come first and then you delight, or if you delight and then you gain a more proper view because you're being exposed to it. I think there's some combination of that some of the time. You can't please the Lord unless you have faith. And nobody comes to the Lord unless you think he is there and he rewards those who seek him. Do you think that he rewards those who seek him? If you do, then I think you have good reason to delight in the seeking him. If you don't, maybe risk it. You don't have much else to lose. Next question. This psalm describes sinners being unable to stand in the congregation of the righteous. Although we are Christians, we are still sinners, and we are here today. How can this be? Yeah. The final judgment, there will be two lines. There will be a line behind Adam, and there will be a line behind Jesus. And those will be the two representatives of humanity. The line behind Adam will represent us in our fallen original sin. And it'll be full of people. People in this room. Some people in this room. And the line behind Jesus, Jesus will stand as a representative of our humanity. Why does God see fit to count Jesus' righteousness as our own? How could a holy God possibly take on the sin of his church and make us clean? How could he pass on his righteousness to us as though it were our own and treat us as though we did those things? I don't know. A lot of this is pretty mysterious. But that's, that's our promise as Christians. Is that although we see our sin, we've been atoned for. And so we can stand in the congregation, approach God as though we were his children. It takes a lot of correcting our thoughts with the word to actually believe that and to live from a place that actually believes that. All right, that's the final question, because that was the third one. Um, we're going to take communion. Communion is an opportunity to meditate. Part of it's also a demonstration of this wholeness of our humanity. This is a physical act. 
you taste. We'll see later in the Psalms, it says, taste and see that the Lord is good. This is a practice of that. The bread that represents Jesus' body that was broken for us, being brought to nothing, perishing, like the wicked, although he was perfectly righteous. And his blood that was spilled for us to atone for our wickedness. Each communion, we celebrate that. We remember that. We walk past it. We stand near it. We sit down in that. And that becomes the source of our identity. That becomes the way that we see the world based in this grace that God showed us. So let's pray. Father, I pray that you would make us a church that is planted by streams of water, that you would grow us individually and together by your word, moving in us and correcting our thoughts back to what you are really saying in the scripture. Father, show us yourself that our minds might be corrected. Lord, lift us up in Jesus' name. Amen. You can find more audio as well as study questions and sermon notes at l2church.com. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us a message through the contact form on our website. Thanks for listening. Thank you.